Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, and today we're going to be talking about the benefits of oral versus IV vitamins and other nutrients. Today, I have a special doctor who I believe is the top vitamin and supplement specialist in the country. He's not a household name like Dr. Oz or Dr. Mark Hyman, but as what I try to do in this podcast, I go throughout the country to find the doctors that I think are going to deliver the information that you will find most useful. So for today's podcast, he's Dr. Mitchell Genn, or Dr. Mitch, as his patients in Boca Raton, Florida, know him. He is certified by the Board of Anti-Aging. I was fortunate enough to attend a course given by Dr. Genn about two years ago, and I was mesmerized by all his knowledge on IV vitamins and supplements. And I also had the good fortune of actually spending some time with him in the office, watching how he treats his patients. And it's very interesting because he has also many different approaches to treating chronic, difficult diseases and which supplements work well and which are not so good. So with that introduction, I'd like to welcome Dr. Gen to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Dean. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I know you're very familiar with broadcast. I know you have the Dr. Mitch show, I think, down in uh, Boca Raton as well. I do. I do a um, nationally syndicated on a network called CRN Network every Sunday. Plus, I do a live television show uh, that goes to about 2 million people throughout the south of this country. So I'm very comfortable doing these kind of shows, and especially with you because you're my buddy. So it's well, kind of I'm, nice I'm, to I'm your here. student colleague, and also you actually can – if you can entertain doctors for eight hours a clip when you do those courses, uh, I thought you'd be pretty darn good. So anyway, we're going to jump right into it. And this is what I would like with you to do right now, because so many patients come in with oral supplements. They're taking this, they're taking that, they're spending thousands of dollars not knowing whether it works or not. I know, again, when I took your course, you had basically a list of like 27 supplements that you recommend for for good health. So I just want to shoot through each one, because some may surprise patients about how they should be taking it and whether or not they should be taking it. So this will be a quick sort of, you know, gunshot on a bunch of different supplements. So essential fatty acids, important, not important. Extremely important. Our body doesn't make essential fatty acids. So it's pretty much required every day as part of our daily nutrition. The lack of them will run from everything from a poor immune response to dry flaky skin. So the answer to that is absolutely necessary. Okay. But which I've told a lot of my patients since I took your course too, but you also, we shouldn't talk to the patients. You're not a fan of fish oils. You feel that they're, I believe, I want to hear in your words, contaminated. So you want the patients to get it from, I guess, the plant-based type of ancestral fatty acids? Yeah, I do. And I see, I originally, when I started practice, when you were still probably in utero, <laughs> we used fish oils a lot. Right. But when you look at it from a logical perspective, Dean, it becomes a problem because the fish oils are all derived from cold water fish. So you're looking at, you know, sardines and anchovies and krill from the Arctic Circle. The problem is these fish have these oils as part of their protective nature for the cold water. They're, it's their antifreeze. 
And fish do not have oil glands. So when you take out fish from the ocean, they have to squish 17.1 pounds of fish to make one capsule of the fish oil. Now, if you imagine they're going to squish these fish, put them in a 50-gallon drum, which they do, take it to the manufacturer, then the manufacturer takes whatever time they need to put it into a capsule, which is not purely not having oxygen go through. Then it goes on a plane, a train, a bus, whatever. It gets to the store, the doctor's office, sits on the shelf, and then the individual swallows it into 98.6 degree stomach. You're looking at rancidity beyond rancidity. These things, fats are all bad. You know, it's so interesting you said that, though, because (laughs) one time I was actually doing the laundry at home. My wife should be listening to this podcast. And I open up the dryer machine and the dryer machine smells horrific. I'm like, what happened in here? You know, whatever too. And I'm going through my clothes and I found some fish oils that I hadn't taken out of my pocket had been, you know, whatever, crushed in the process. So I I kind of strongly believed after that that you were 100% right. <laughs> so, okay. Well, good. You had to learn by the school of hard knocks, but it, it is true. They, they're rancid and pretty much if you look at the studies, they're not as impressive as they used to talk about it, but they're not impressive at all for actually helping people. I guess if you're extremely deficient in essential fatty acids in the initial, you know, couple of months, the fish oils may do some good, but long-term they may have some more deleterious effects than good effects. So plant-based is the way to go. Blue-green algae or something like that too? Is that how you would recommend patients get it from? Yeah, either blue-green algae they can get it from. I like uh, the flaxseed derivative, safflower oil. That's, you know, organic oils. I think uh, everything should always be organic oils anyway. Okay. So either way, yeah, they're fine. Okay. Another one that's not always on the radar for patients, CoQ10. I've heard, obviously, important for heart health. I deal with it a lot with them. I have chronic fatigue patients, so that's just like, you know, a, a staple. But tell me again why you think it's so important. Well, CoQ10's actual scientific word is called ubiquinol or ubiquinone, and it comes from the word ubiquitous, meaning being everywhere. So pretty much every single cell in the human body, the 100 to 200 trillion cells, has ubiquinol or CoQ10 in it. And without it, and we start to not have the same functioning of the mitochondria, that's the powerhouse of the cell, the part of the cell that actually makes our energy. So as we get older, we tend to not make it as well. So after pretty much the age of 30, 35, pretty much everyone should be supplementing. And depending upon what other medications and other problems that that person suffers from, the dosage should go up subsequently as well. Yeah, I agree with you. As I said, I deal with chronic fatigue patients. I think every heart patient, it's it's a great idea. Okay. What about also now the, the, the vitamin D combined with, with uh, K2, you know, uh, with vitamin K? I've been reading on it. There's a guy, Dennis Goodman, up here who's written some books about it. I think you've been talking about it for a long time. Very important or or vitamin D alone and a certain dosage. You know, what's your recommendations on that? Well, both alone have a, a lot to help out with the human body. We know that vitamin D is so essential. It's been reclassified from a vitamin to a hormone involved in more than 400 chemical reactions per second. And these include reducing cancer and heart risk, et cetera. Large doses of vitamin D also help calcium be laid down. So the calcium that's in your meal, uh, we don't want it laying down in our arteries to cause calcific changes and plaque in our artery. But with the addition of the K2, vitamin K2, anything over like 122 micrograms, not milligrams, but micrograms, stops that from occurring and stops this outsider exogenous calcium from being laid down in the wrong place. So if you take the two of them together, 
then you're assured to get the benefits of both. And one of the benefits of vitamin K is a remarkable less problem with heart disease. So the combination's super. Something else I was so surprised to see on your list was grapeseed extract. Again, something I use for candida yeast overgrowth. What do you like about grapeseed extract? Grapeseed extract is a great polyphenol. It's a great local type of thing that you can get very easily. I find grapeseed extract is a wonderful antioxidant and it goes together with the others very nicely. But also, I use it quite readily because there's been found that with, for, for example, chemotherapy, for those individuals that are on chemotherapy, it helps reduce the side effects and also enhance the effects of, that, of many of the chemotherapeutic agents. So I like it, in, especially in that kind of individual. But as an antioxidant, general antioxidant, it's, it's a very good one too. Okay. One of the things I had never heard of before until I was at your course was Benagene. So tell us about that a little bit, because I know you like popping those during the course. <laughs> yeah, I do. It, it keeps me away. I, I pop them during the day. And, and since you're making this interview so much fun and go so fast, I don't even have time to put it in my mouth. So it's kind of fun oh, to no. be with you. <laughs> the Benagene is really known as its chemical name, oxaloacetate. And the, every single cell of the human body actually works and produces energy. And it does so through, if anyone listening remembers chemistry when they were in high school or in college, that energy cycle begins with taking a molecule of glucose. And then we break it down. It goes to something called the Krebs cycle. Well, the Krebs cycle, one of the key positions is this benagene or oxaloacetate. So what it does is it changes a few chemical ratios and a little bit of you know chemistry, but without getting involved, basically we can say is that it reduces or helps the use of our sugars, number one, much like the drug metformin, if not as good, or oh, better. Wow. Mm. Uh, so it works in that light. And it also does one other thing that makes much great, great sense. It actually stimulates what we call caloric restriction. And the one thing we've seen in anti-aging, so to speak, because no one really anti-ages, but in improving the aging process is, of course, to stimulate something called the sirtuin gene or the caloric restriction gene. And in, we, they found in animals, for example, if you feed them every other day, they double their life. You hear a lot of people talking about intermittent fasting. Same thing. That's what Benagene does. It creates that intermittent fasting type of situation. Therefore, your sugars are better and you basically gain a little more life and more energy. Wow. That was a great transition from, you know, my, the podcast I just did last uh, time was with Mark Matson, who's like was the director at the uh, National Institute of Aging. And that's precisely, essentially, his his research of 30 years showing exactly what you're saying. But it's nice that something like Benagene or oxaloacetate can help you because I know myself too, like you get those hunger pangs. It's nice to pop something to that's safe and healthy that is going to keep your blood sugar very stabilized and keeps you well. Another one that's unusual that I don't think most people know about is Neo40. Can you tell us about that? Oh, I love Neo40. Neo40 is a replacement for people that have low nitric oxide. So to just step back away from it for a moment and explain that our arteries, when we're healthy, the one cell lining of the artery called the endothelial lining, which is pretty much everything to whether you're going to get heart disease or not, this little lining produces three gases. And when you tell that to people, they say, what do you mean it produces gas? Well, it does. It produces three gases. We produce carbon monoxide. We produce in small, small amounts. We also produce hydrogen sulfide. You know what that is. That's the thing that causes the other gas that comes out the other end to stink. And then we also produce nitric oxide. 
which is the one that's been actually researched the most. And we know that nitric oxide is what dilates our blood vessels, helps our immune system. Men, we certainly don't want to lose nitric oxide because without it, we're not going to get a good erection. So the nitric oxide actually gives us that great erection, maintaining the erection, et cetera. And that's why these medications that we see out now, like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, what they do is try to stop this nitric oxide from leaving the body and being degraded. So what Neo40 does is a little bit from a different perspective. It actually helps and gives the body nitric oxide. And once you have more nitric oxide, of course, then you're able to get more blood into the brain, more blood into the penis, into the pelvis, better response from an immune system response. So it is a phenomenal product and pretty much folks, uh, once you get over 40, that lining begins to in the one cell lining of the arteries begins to go bad. When you compare a 60 year old to someone in their twenties, there's only 15% real difference after that. And 15% compared to when you were younger is a lot. So Neo 40 becomes into play. Yeah. You mentioned something also in one of the lectures too, I thought was really interesting, like L-arginine, which people have heard about, you know, you can get it in asparagus, but you're saying also, I think at the course that when you're over 40, a lot of us don't have the enzyme to convert it to the nitric oxide. So that doesn't work. You know, they might be wasting their money buying L-arginine. Is that right? It's probably a step beyond that, Dean. Um, L-arginine is a wonderful product. We need it. It's in foods and it is one of the rate limiting steps to produce nitric oxide. That's how our body normally does it through a complex series of things, including thyroid and oxytocin and a few other things. However, once we get older, we lose the enzyme, like you were just mentioning, to be able to break down the L-arginine into nitric oxide. And what we're finding is, is that we're actually having more vascular disease. You can actually increase in a couple studies, someone getting vascular disease, meaning that person can't walk very far and then gets pain in their legs. So if you're over 40, we make the assumption that large doses of L-arginine may be more problematic than they are good. So something, a product like Neo40 actually captures a little bit of the L-arginine with sodium citrate and a few other things that literally actually release nitric oxide into the system. So you're getting the benefit immediately without the side effects. Yeah, see, that's what's so important. And I hope our listeners appreciate That's why I loved having you on because sometimes people think more is always better and not necessarily. What's your take also on digestive enzymes? Do you like to use it? Do you feel a lot of people don't have the, you know, especially as they age, don't have the digestive enzymes to help absorb the minerals and vitamins that they need? Or is it really specific patients that you recommend it to? Well, the body produces digestive enzymes for a good reason. An enzyme is a product of trying to make a reaction occur much quicker than it would on its own. For example, if you ate lunch this afternoon, uh, you still would digest it without any enzymes, but it might take 50 years. What the enzymes do, of course, is in three to four or five hours will help you to digest. Now, the problem begins that if you compare a 22-year-old individual to a 42-year-old individual, there's a thousand-fold decline in these uh, digestive enzymes. So the older you get, the more difficult it is for you to digest food. And what happens as you get older, the food lays in your stomach, you become bloated, you don't feel as right. So it does become an important part of the nutritionists and doctors like yourself, integrative doctors, armamentarian to be able to help people and help folks to digest properly, given that it will decline over time. So do I believe it's important? I think it's very important. And especially if that person complains about poor bowel habits, bloating, belching, 
not feeling well after eating, feeling too full, etc. Do you feel it's good to do it during the meal, like actually when the enzymes should be working or because I know some people take it before meals. I think it's a mistake. I think they should, because the timing of it till the pancreas would normally de- you know, deliver these enzymes, that should be actually during the meal or at the end of the meal? No, I agree with you. Take it during the meal. Yeah. Like halfway through or quarter way through, take it then. That's when it's going to do its job, just like the pancreas physiologically would release digestive enzymes if it's working properly. Right. All right. We're going to start to make the transition. On, but before we do, I want to ask you something that I have strong feelings about, and I think you do too, is the route of absorbing vitamins. Now, again, I'll just tell you, like I've seen patients that come from some other alternative doctors, not like yourself or I, hopefully myself, they come in with a garbage pail full of, of uh, vitamins and supplements. And then, and then and I, I start to open the bottles uh, as I'm in the office and I'm seeing these things that look like hard little rocks. And I'm like, oh no, this is not getting digested and they're wasting all this money. I'm a big believer and I'm just interested in your thoughts. I'm a big believer in liquid vitamins. When you can, you can take it from sublingual or if it's a lozenger or a powder form. Do you find it's important, the, the, you know, the, the route and the form of the vitamin to get the best absorption before we get to parenteral vitamins? So I would answer that question in a multifaceted way. First, okay. you have to rec- recognize basically that many of the forms of the vitamins and or the minerals, it goes in several layers. One, what's the base of that particular nutrient? So for example, let's take magnesium. There are many forms right. of magnesium. Magnesium oxide, which is the, the ore that comes out of the ground, is very poorly absorbed. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's only maybe 20, 30% absorbed. All oral agents to begin with may be absorbed maybe 30%, 40% on the best day of your that's life. A, right, that's a very then if you point. add in age and, and these type of things, lack of acid in the stomach, poor digestive enzymes, add in the fact that, you know, that uh, wasn't taken at the proper time, you know, all these things begin to affect the absorption. So that's the first thing. Second, you want to know what the vehicle is. If it's in a tablet, what were the excipients that were used to hold the tablet together? They may be difficult to break down because typically they're cellulose derivative and they're tough to break down. Capsules on general probably break down better. Powders uh, in liquids probably even better. But again, it depends on so many other factors simultaneously from what was the base of the substance, how was it made, and of course, what's the pH of the abdomen, if there's enough acid, et cetera. But I would agree that most likely that which is in the liquid form is going to do the best, just like an aspirin. If you take an aspirin in a liquid form, it absorbs much quicker than if you right. take it in a, in a pill or capsule form. Yeah. I'm a big sort of sublingual specialist. You know, I'm known in the allergy field for that, and now I'm doing with the foods, which I'm really excited about. But, you know, what I love about it, and I'm getting your thoughts too, is that, you know, it took me back to my basic physiology when you take a supplement, if you can, if you can do it sublingually, you miss the, what's called the first pass effect, which I didn't understand when I was in medical school. Now I understand it really well is that, you know, what people need to understand that when you, you know, you swallow, whether it's food or medicine, especially medicine or vitamin, a supplement, the stomach, you know, after it's dissolved it, it goes, sends it to the liver to say, check this out, liver. Is this okay for the rest of the body? And then when it shoots it back into the circulation, it's only sending a certain proportion so essentially, like as you just mentioned, you're getting a lower percentage anyway of whatever was even digested. And whereas the sublingual, you're going really essentially right into the bloodstream, like the way we used to give for nitroglycerin, you know, for people having heart attacks. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, if you can get a sublingual formulation of a particular nutrient 
it's going to definitely because the I think folks don't realize that in under the tongue there is a large plexus or a large amount of veins. If you look in the mirror and pull your tongue up, you'll see it. And so the material as it's presented to these veins will allow the material to go directly often in the bloodstream, just like you use the, the example, which is a good one of nitroglycerin, put it, glycerin, put it under the tongue and it quickly gets into the bloodstream. Yeah, it's a good idea. All right. Now we got to move on to what is your super expertise. I don't know anybody I think in the country who knows more about IV supplements than you do. You've written textbook on this. You've done multiple, multiple workshops for doctors to learn this. And now we're seeing IV bars popping up, you know, doing hangover IVs and claiming they're going to get rid of wrinkles. I am using IV vitamins and I've been doing it for like 20 years, treating patients with serious chronic conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. So my question to you is, who do you think is a good candidate for IV vitamin therapy in general? Well, I would say pretty much everyone. I thought you might say that, but okay. <laughs> I mean, that stems from the athlete, athlete to the elderly to the middle age. I mean, pretty much everyone because the food supply and the amount and quantity of the oral nutrients and the amount that's actually absorbed is not that great. The IV route, which is 100% absorbed, makes the most sense to me. And, and I can tell you just from my own perspective, I give myself two IVs a week. Wow. So wow. I guess I guess it makes you're sense. A be, you're a believer. You know, it's interesting. I just want to bring this up. There is a really brilliant guy named Ray Kurzweil. He was actually really, to me, educated me so much. And he's not even a doctor, but he actually, he was an inventor. And his family had a serious history of heart disease. Both his grandfather and father died in their 40s of heart attacks. And he was not getting help from his doctors at the time. I think he was in Boston. And he just started to do all of his own research. And he actually wrote a book called Fantastic Voyage, which I recommend to so many patients and Transcend. But I found so many of the things in that book is essentially what you're busy teaching doctors and showing your patients. And he also, in fact, would get like two IVs a week, you know, to help his arteries, to help his overall health. Why do you think it's so important? Do you think that because we, you know, we're just not getting the the vitamins from the foods that we're taking, and you know, the other, obviously, you know, the, I mean, what would you say are the main benefits that you're even looking for in yourself? Well, first, to answer the first part of your question, you know, you're right. The food supply is remarkably decreased. You know, the U.S. Agriculture Department used about 2,200 respondents at one time in an open letter. When they look back at that, and this was probably about 15, 18 years ago. If they just looked at the 19 specific vitamins, not including, you know, the 72 other minerals and things that we require every day, of the 16 nutrients of the 2,200 people that responded, none of them, zero, got the even the recommended daily allowance of every single vitamin and nutrient. It's not possible. So with studies like that, we realize that we're not going to get what we need. Now, you could take a multiple and do the essential fatty acids, the CoQ10, the things that we talked about earlier. But... If you really want to be able to get 100% into the bloodstream, then that's the only way to do that. And the truth is, with so many disorders, um, pretty much every disorder, if it isn't in its initial start off, it becomes a nutrient deficient, regardless of the disease. Name the disease may not have started as a nutrient deficiency, but it will become one. And it deepens and it hastens the demise either of the patient or deepens the problems that are associated with that particular disorder. So IV to me means the world. There's no way that I can see that you can fix, for example, heart disease, no way in the world outside of doing a catheterization and doing a bypass, which still doesn't fix the underlying disease, 
There's no drug that we have in the conventional system, but, but intravenously, we can pretty much all the time reverse this, and we see it happening all the time. And it's my opinion that is the only way that we, in this day and age, are able to see significant differences in, in heart. And heart is maybe not the number one killer as of recently. They're maybe saying the Western countries are cancer, but either way, it, is, it, it provides so much benefit to the individual when it's done right and in compliance with what the patient's individual biochemistry is, that it makes sense for everyone to be doing IVs, especially if you're over 40. So let's just talk about a couple of the ingredients that go into it. You know, people may have heard who are interested in this area, Myers cocktail, and typically it's a high-dose vitamin C. So you feel, again, getting this high-dose vitamin C is critical. Well, vitamin C, um, you know, they first, you know, was poo-pooed, went back and forth, but vitamin C, just to give you an overview is probably the second most used, if not first, in the brain. It's uh, used for the heart. Every white blood cell in the body requires vitamin C. When they look at elderly in several studies, it showed that pretty much a good portion of them in the 70s or more percent had scurvy levels of vitamin C when they went to the hospital. It's such an easy vitamin to easily be destroyed by pollution, by cigarette smoke, you name it, stress. If you look at the lower animals that make vitamin C, the human can't. We That's lo- right. We lack That's a the great enzyme. point. That's right. That's um, if you take point. a goat, for example, the equivalent of goats make 13,000 milligrams a day. The mouse makes between the equivalent of us of five and 15,000 milligrams a day. And if you look at people like Linus Pauling, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in vitamin C, certainly not a slouch, right? No, um, brilliant. He said just to keep the arteries clean, you need at least 3,700 milligrams a day. So yes, it's an extremely important vitamin that the body does not make, but without it, you can't live. You'd bleed to death. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I wanted to ask you, one of the other things that we use in the vitamins is glutathione. And, you know, people have heard about that. Well, some people have, some people haven't, as being the real liver cleanser. Tell us a little bit about glutathione and and how it, it could be really important. Glutathione is the number one intra- cellular antioxidant. What that means is it's the number one antioxidant that resides inside every one of our cells. And as we get older, we make less and less of it inside our body. And it may be, it is a good phase two detoxification, a liver pathway material. It's one of many, by the way, it's not the only one. It is extremely important like the others are, but glutathione with age does decrease. And it is really, really important for trying to make sure that the cells, again, it's all about, I think what we haven't mentioned yet, and I, if I can just in a second, Dean, is to say that it's just basically, you know, we, we go to a, a doctor conventionally normally, not you or myself, and, we, and, we, and, the, and the doctor creates the if-then situation. If you have this, we'll do that. If you have diabetes, we'll give you a drug. If you have cholesterol, we'll give you a drug. If you have high blood pressure, here's a drug. You have heart disease, here's a drug. The truth is that's not really the medicine of physiology, of function. What we need to do is figure out what are the things that the body requires to repair itself, how God made us to begin with. So every time that we use things of that nature, whether intravenous, which glutathione fits perfectly into that scenario, is that we're now creating good health. And if the 100 to 200 trillion cells that we have are healthy, then the body can repair itself from some even of the most horrible diseases. So we have to give the cells all the possibilities of, of, of creating cells. So when you look at the body, what's in these cells 
are things like the things you're talking about, vitamin C, glutathione, central fatty acids. They're in every single one of the person who's healthiest. And who's the healthiest? Of course, our youth. So as we get older, we don't have the same nutrition. We don't eat as well. We're nervous. We're stressed. Everything. We're inflamed. We lose that. So by replacing it or repleting it with IVs, with oral, doing the things that you teach your patients makes a huge difference for the way they feel, act, and live longer. The key is quality, not quantity. And that quantity will follow the quality. That's definitely true. You know, unfortunately, in New York, I'm seeing younger and younger patients that, uh, seem to really need the benefits of the IV due to the stress and poor diet, things they didn't know. I mean, it's, it's really pretty rampant. I want to ask you something related to the IVs. It's something I, you know, heavy metal testing. It's something I really haven't done, you know, a whole lot of in my practice yet, and chelation. What's your thoughts on that? Is heavy metal as big an issue as people are sort of saying? Is, is chelation the answer for that? Well, we replaced the word now deemed heavy metal with the word toxic metal because... Oh, okay. For example, aluminum is a toxic metal, but doesn't fall into the heavy metal category of the uh, periodic chart. So it, okay. there are lots of toxic metals. We introduce them in the people's bodies when we send them, for example, with enhancement to get an MRI. Gadolinium is a, also a problem and is causing problems of the arteries and fibromuscular dysplasia, et cetera, things of this nature, making the arteries stiff right. as well. And the truth is, none of these things, uh, when, when, when you're talking about these toxic metals like aluminum, arsenic, mercury, lead, cadmium, and on and on, they're not needed in human nutrition. And even you know, small quantities now have been reviewed. We know even small quantities of lead are a problem. We know small quantities of arsenic increase the female's risk for breast carcinoma. We know even small quantities of arsenic, even up to 40 years later, increases the risk of bladder cancer. So it makes, to me, a great sense in most patients to screen because even though they believe they weren't playing with lead or something and they don't shoot guns, it's so ubiquitous. It's all over the place, these toxic metals, where you really don't know over time how much you've picked up and you don't know how good your body is getting rid of them. So getting a test will tell you that. And yes, if someone has a lot of them, it makes sense to get rid of them. And the way we do that is using a chelating agent. Okay, so testing, which I've heard different things, hair analysis, urine, what, what do you prefer in patients, you know, to assess them so they get an accurate assessment as best as possible? Blood, because I know blood is, you know. I use urine challenge. I give them an agent that goes in and pulls it out because you see the, without a challenge test, just by checking some urine or blood or whatever, these toxic metals at the longest last about three weeks in the bloodstream. So unless they've ingested it yesterday, the day before, it may not be there, but there could be much higher levels. So using an agent to sort of yank them into the urine is the best way. So either a, a pre or non challenge test followed by a challenge test or just a challenge test alone will give a lot of information as to whether these materials are present in the human body. I will either use EDTA, which is used in lots of our foods that we eat. Uh, it stands for ethylene diamine tetracetic acid. It's a semi-synthetic amino acid. Or I'll use a sulfur derivative called DMSA. And either one is extremely well tolerated. There's really no side effects. They take it, wait a couple hours, and they collect their urine for six to eight hours. And voila, in two days, you really pretty much know, do they have any evidence of having any of these toxic metals in them, which no question will stop the cells from working properly. Going back to our original premise, the cells have to work properly. Plus many four or five of the metals, for example, like arsenic, mercury, 
lead, cadmium, and gadolinium are toxic to the, they're considered what they call vasotoxic. They're toxic to the arteries and they cause in help in generating plaque or accelerating plaque. So you want to know if that's there because someone has a lot of it is much more prone to getting heart disease or having a stroke. No, that was an excellent explanation. One last thing I think hopefully I know you're busy today, but uh, uh, another thing I just want to touch on if you had a couple of minutes, because I was fascinated. You know, I had a podcast about chronic Lyme disease and how difficult it is to treat. And I know when I went to your seminar and actually visited you at the office, I saw people getting the Argentin, which is like the, the silver IV. Could you just touch upon a little bit about how this is helpful for Lyme disease patients who I know, unfortunately, who, who've been diagnosed in at later phases are truly suffering and don't have really many good options. Well, one of the uh, miracles that we've seen as far as an antiseptic now, and any, everyone knows what an antibiotic is. It goes against the bacteria. We know what an antiviral is, goes against viruses. We know what an antifungal is, goes against funguses. But an antiseptic like alcohol, for example, an antiseptic kills everything, bacteria, viruses, and also it kills some of the molds and things of that nature. So uh, the best antiseptic, and you know, of course, it's back to biblical times as well as silver, which it's talked about many times. And uh, silver is one of the best sterilization materials that we have. I mean, the astronauts take silver with them to sterilize their water. You find that if you look back over time, you know, the aristocracy, when there was the bubonic plague, they did much better because they were had silver spoons, supposedly they used in their mouth. So silver is a very, very broad spectrum antiseptic. And if you use a very low quantity of silver, so it doesn't cause any of the side effects like Argeria, turn someone blue, none of the things like that. When I was on your like course, I, asked, I, said, I said, are people going to turn blue on this? <laughs> you gave me a look like, Dr. Mitchell, sit down. <laughs> you know, you're talking about such a, yeah, you're talking about such a low quantity. Yeah. When you're talking something that's you know, 10 or 23 parts per million, you're talking about 23 milligrams per thousand cc's. You know, if you look at even the FDA studies, you have to have almost a thousand times that you even hit what's called the low out, the lowest adverse reaction level. So you're, you're certainly in safe ground. But at the same time, what the silver does, if it comes in contact with this bacteria, which is a spirochete bacterium that Lyme is, it will penetrate it and destroy its cell wall and the Lyme will die. And if you overlap it by giving it orally and, you know, a little bit in the eye, et cetera, et cetera, the results are often spectacular. Sometimes you have to mix it with a little antibiotics at the end or even a little bit after, but the results I have found are always been extremely satisfying for both the patient and myself. Yeah, no, I've recommended to patients here in New York who have suffered have not gotten relief from anything. I try sometimes uh, intramuscular gamma globulin in some of these very difficult chronic Lyme patients, but I tell them about the work that you're doing, which I, I think is phenomenal. Well, we're coming to the end here. I know because you've got to get back to patients, and I will be too, but uh, this was really a fascinating discussion. I hope for our listeners, because again, I've had the chance to talk to you on occasions, and I'm always coming away with something new. And I hope people have a better understanding on how to benefit from oral and IV supplements. Thank you, Dr. Mitch, for giving us your insight into these treatments. For our listeners, if you hopefully enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. Or if you have any further questions, go to my Facebook page at mitchellmedicalgroup.com. Again, thank you, Dr. Mitch. It was a pleasure as usual. Thanks, Dean. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. 
You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com. 